I'm quite uh, excited to speak with you tonight. I don't know why, because I have no idea what I'm going to say. My thoughts are completely unformed, but I want to speak tonight a little bit about safety. Because my sense is from uh, my own inner experience and outer experience and working with others is there is a universal deep longing that I think all beings carry to feel safe. Uh, and in the teachings, the, the acknowledgement of this universal longing is expressed in the traditional loving-kindness phrases. Uh, in one of the main phrases, the, it goes, May I feel safe and protected from inner and outer harm. And this sounds like a nice phrase, but I think it strikes at the, uh, the deep, um, the, one of the most deep-rooted causes that we have um, for suffering is the, the longing, the natural longing for safety, but the tendency, just like love, to look for safety in all the wrong places. And I was thinking, while you were busy meditating, and your mind's dead silent, communing with the suchness of things, I was proliferating, what word for Pali, papancha, proliferating in ideas about the Dharma talk, I was reflecting on the Buddha and his longing to find a place of safety within himself because he saw, as most of you know, who've read the story of the Buddha, he saw that there was no safety in uh, our bodies, ultimately, even though they're a wonderful anchor to the present moment while they're alive, there is no safety in them in that they are continually in a state of aging, of breaking down, of illness, and eventually they, they die. So there's no security to be found in the body. And he saw that, uh, that, that so much of his search for safety was in what he called the pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life. The, the building of the house of ego, the house of self, around something that cannot uh, really be said to be reliable because of this fact of, of sickness, old age, and death. Tethering our identity and how many of us are not identified with our bodies? Anybody here? <laughs> we have one person out of a hundred. <laughs> Thank you for there being one person who's contemplated these matters. But as the, the Buddha realized that the Safety was not necessarily going to be found in the uh, the physical form, nor obviously in the outer conditions of 
of pleasure and the worldly winds that blow through our lives, the inevitable movements of pleasure followed by pain, gain followed by loss, fame followed by shame, success followed by failure, these worldly winds that blow through our lives, that also reminded him that there's no safety to be found in any one side of those, those equations. And then he sat under the Bodhi tree and he saw that there was no safety to be found in moods and emotions, constantly changing. No safety to be found in thoughts and images. That the fact that thoughts and images, moods and emotions, sensations were in a constant state of flux, he saw that because of their incessantly changing nature, they could not, there was no identity to be found in them. There was nothing there that you could say, that's me. It was gone before you even, before you could even catch something. Everything is so momentary. And in fact, he even saw that the consciousness that knows all of this is also momentary. So he saw that there was no safety to be found in a view of self, a view that there is someone within us that exists independently, solidly, apart from everything else. That there was that everything was marked by impermanence, unreliability, and non-self. There was no no safety to be found there. Yet you hear over and over, "May I be, may I feel safe? May you feel safe and protected." from inner and outer harm. There's such an emphasis on finding safety. The good news, the bad news is all these things that I just said, it's not really the bad news, it's the good news if you can come in the course of your life to live in harmony with these facts. And that's the that's where we find that there is and what he discovered that there is a um, there is safety to be found. There is within us a place of refuge. And you can hear from the, perhaps from the Buddha's understanding that the refuge came not so much in some experience that could last, but it came in a, in a response to a, a deepening understanding of things the way they are things as they come to be in our lives. So it doesn't have much to do with what's happening, but it has everything to do with an understanding of how to relate to, how to be with what's happening. And as I was thinking about the, the Buddha's seeing through the all of the... Uh, all of the ways that we apply what he called a misplaced faith in things that can't really give us a sense of safety or refuge, how he came to that understanding. I was thinking about uh, how the, how the uh, unawareness or the obliviousness to the 
inherent insecurity of our life, that it's really insecure. Even tonight as I was sitting here, I realized that I had no idea what I was going to say. There's insecurity in that. I had no idea what was going to happen the next moment, and nobody ever does really. Our life is marked by insecurity. But the Buddha didn't just leave it at that we're insecure, so get over it. (laughs) Even though it's sometimes probably a good mantra. Get over yourself. But he said some things that, that I think begin to remind us of a possibility of experiencing, feeling, knowing that there is, um, there is safety to be found in this world. So I, th- I think of the two different, the two different uh, ways of searching for safety. Clearly, you're here tonight because you are interested in experimenting with, you're all looking for safety, I'm looking for safety, but I think you're interested in reflecting on or practicing what the the Buddha uh, asked us to look at. Not to believe, not to adopt as a new view, but to see for ourselves whether or not practice mindfulness, loving-kindness, wisdom, whether that brings a sense of safety or which uh, the other side, which is something that we've all tested out, hiding away in fear and dullness, shutting down, dulling out, intoxicating our mind with, uh, with drugs and alcohol, endless shopping, becoming like the character Spence that I often talk about, who, as you probably, most of you remember, he, he said to have put a new twist on an old philosophy, to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. See, all of these, I always like to say that all of these methods of finding safety, all of these, these diluted means, these, all, they're all means. We're always looking for means. But even our most neurotic means of finding refuge, distraction, Disconnection, disassociation, depersonalization, uh, controlling. I was thinking about one of my... uh, Let me just finish that thought. All of these different methods are an innocent search for safety. They're a sign, as one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta, said, they are a sign of love you bear for yourself. But he says, don't settle for the, the... the small little moments of, of relief that you get because you'll be cheated. Because if you, if you make the fountain of pleasure your devotion, you end up in the fire. And as I think it was Rumi put it, if you're a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand set of moth wings and burn them one set a night. Those who enter the fire end up in the fountain. Those who actually face the truth of how things are can be free. But nevertheless, we tend to just 
choose the water of pleasure and we end up in the fire and we end up completely disconnected and distracted or so uh, in a state of, of insecurity and, and um, frustration. And the, when I was thinking about this today, I was thinking about one of my colleagues who I adore. I won't mention any names. I won't even mention where this person lives. It may be on another side of the world. But one of my colleagues, I would characterize her, and she won't recognize this, if it, even though it will stream around the world. <laughs> but uh, she, she is what I would characterize as, um, and this is in my more critical moments, very controlling, very hyper-fastidious about how things have to be and becomes incredibly uncomfortable when things are not just the way they're supposed to be. And I've bristled in reaction to this kind of controlling whenever I, whenever we've, uh, well, up until some years ago, whenever we were together, I just, I would just bristle. Until I began to understand some of the causes and conditions of her life. When she was a very young girl, her uh, outer situation, and I'm sure this is comparable to many people sitting in this room, was so chaotic that one of her ways of finding refuge was to make sure everything was just so, was to become hyper-fastidious, hyper-controlling. So it was clear that it came out of the inherent insecurity of our being. In most cases, in, in the best of cases, the inherent insecurity that we are born into is met with, with a lot of holding and caretaking and squeezing. And so at least to some measure, even though it's not ultimately reliable, but at least to some measure, we internalize a sense uh, some sense of security that we've been held, and then we internalize that and we're, we're then able to hold ourselves a little more. Can you relate to this? But in, even in those cases, at, our life presents itself, uh, pre- presents conditions that, are, that remind us again and again that even the best caretaking doesn't protect us from insecurity doesn't protect us of the facts of sickness, old age, and death, the facts of uncertainty, the facts of the, of the worldly winds blowing through our lives. I have another friend who brilliant, 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 deep, deep Dharma understanding, but because of, of this person's particular early childhood chaos, his strategy was to, uh, for his life to become very, very narrow and small, shrink, to protect himself from the chaos of dealing with human beings, people, situations. And consequently, that was his strategy. And out of love, you can see both strategies out of love, out of some kind of attempt to make caring, but both strategies creating, uh, creating ultimately, uh, they're ultimately still experiencing the fruit of that being some, maybe some minor relief, but still uh, 
some kind of unsatisfactoriness in life. Very difficult to find an ultimate sense of relief in that kind of strategy. So that's a subtle, maybe more psychological underpinnings to some of the our strategies, but we've got a myriad of them, and most of them has ma- have made us more miserable. Most of the strategies. On the other side, there is the the Buddha. He woke up, and there are others who've woke, uh, awakened. The Buddha saw it uh, pretty clearly that he, you could say he saw the wisdom of no escape. He said, start by recognizing there is in this life dukkha. There is that which is difficult to bear. Nobody escapes it. Welcome this. Really bring it on. Bring it on. Stop running from it. Stop, stop hiding away. Stop distracting yourself. Look at it. See how it works in your life. Don't fall into the, the confusion of the, of the 84th problem, which we talk about a lot on Tuesday nights. The 84th problem, for those of you who haven't been here, everybody has 83 problems. You know, you're not happy with this, you're not happy with that, you've got this to deal with, that to deal with, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. That Everybody has 83 problems. There's not much the teachings can do with that. But, uh, but what the teachings can really deal with, and what he's recommending, is how to deal with the 84th problem. And the 84th problem is you don't think you should have any problems. So the, the remedy or the the prescription for that is yeah just see that this is I hate to use this it's overused but shit happens everybody's got dukkha in their life look around the room you think anybody no matter how privileged you may have been busy comparing and inflating and and building up everybody else's karma to be perfect and yours is the only one who's miserable but the fact is, nobody is immune. Everybody here is a, as we sometimes tritely say, everybody's a bozo on this bus. Everybody. Welcome this. Look at your fellow Dukkha Wallace. Walla is the, sans, is the Hindi word for man or person. We're all Dukkha Wallace. Dukkha means, you know, it's unsatisfactoriness, suffering, pain queasiness, unevenness, anxiousness, everybody. How's it feel to be in the company of other Duke Wallace? <laughs> I don't know, I feel better when I look at you and see. I don't only see you that way. But he didn't stop there, and I'll just go through these really quickly. He said that there is a, there is a, uh, that that's painful just to be one of us. But what really turns that pain into suffering is this tendency that we become really absorbed in of wanting things to be different than the way they are, of being in contention with reality, and we express that by continually wanting uh, something more pleasurable. Again, out of love for ourselves, but that state of wanting, the state of waiting, the state of hoping, the state of irritation, the state of anger, the state of frustration, the state of reactivity, the state of continually waiting 
for the future that never arrives because time is always now. That state keeps us in a state of, of suffering, of perpetual suffering. So there's pain in the first truth, suffering in the second, the cause of, of uh, our mental reactivity. He said this has to be, we have to learn how to, in our life, come into harmony with things the way they are, which means we have to learn to let things be, to let things go, to see how things are, to let go. Just for one moment, let go of resisting. Let go of looking ahead. Let go of looking back. Let go of looking up or down. Just let yourself be for a moment. Just even notice in this room tonight when you, when you step out of time for a moment. Where you stop looking, where you stop making future making in your mind stop past making in your mind just for one moment notice what happens to your organism notice what happens to your to your whole nervous system when you just stop keep quiet and for one moment you don't give rise to a to a notion about the past or the future or a story about yourself really analogous to just being mindful of what's most obvious right now. In that moment of mindfulness, we do stop flapping our arms and our lips for a moment. That reminds me, one of my strategies when I was younger to deal with my insecurity was, especially if I felt unsafe with people as I would talk incessantly. See, now you're letting me do it. <laughs> I've told this story before, but for those of you who haven't heard this, I, and it was very innocent on my part. Because I was just, and this is the other thing that we try to do, part of our safety thing is we try to avoid conflict. And there was a, a young woman who had a, a crush on me. And I really liked her a lot, but I just didn't feel that that way. I just didn't like her in that way that she liked me. And I tried to say no in the nicest kind of way, but she, and I wanted to be her friend really badly because I felt a real kinship with her. It wasn't a romantic kinship, but she didn't take that so well. And so she started really scrutinizing me intensely and being acting and I could even I could feel in her presence very critical. Any of you ever had that experience of somebody being critical? Well, the way that I dealt with that criticalness and that the fear that it was creating or something it was some unsettledness that it was creating is I just started motoring. I would just when I was around her I would talk a lot. <laughs> I'd kind of fill up the space. And that was again an innocent attempt to find some sense of equilibrium and relief. And my birthday came soon after that, and she gave me a card for my birthday. That was a a good sign to start with. But then I opened the card, and in it, she gave me a passage from Cahill Gibran. And the passage said, (laughs) Those who can't live in the quietness of their hearts live in their lips.
as I say this, and as I've said it many times, I have I have complete forgiveness for that that neurotic strategy, and I I feel that compassion or forgiveness for for even people that cause a lot of suffering. At least I, and you can understand. It's not rocket science. That it's all driven by trying to find security where security is not possible to find. This is what the Buddha saw under the Bodhi tree. Everything flying by. Consciousness, the objects, again and again. No security. And the more that we try to build a house and defend and protect this house of me, this house of separateness, this house of certainty, we just... We're just continually setting ourselves up to be, to be thrown around. And as we crash, as, we, as the sand loosens under our feet, we just try harder and harder to keep the boat afloat. And mixing too many metaphors here. <laughs> anyway, what's really needed is, uh, is love is loving, as I often say, loving that house that ego built, loving all of our strategies. But the Buddha didn't stop. He said there's a cause of this, this continual trying to make things different than the way they are. He said this must be, we need to learn to let go. And then he said there's, there, you can in the midst of this recognize there is the potential and I like to add, in any moment, to experience the cessation, the ending of, that, uh, of the suffering in your mind, of the reactivity, of the, of the um, demand for things to be different. There is a cessation. There is the end of suffering. And his recommendation, this must be realized. You can, in the midst of it, in the midst of whatever condition, find a place of freedom. And finally he said there's a path. The path, there is a path. There are many paths, but in his recommendation, there is a path that can bring safety and security to our life. Not safety in our body, safety in our moods, safety in our thoughts, safety, but safety in our understanding, Safety in a, in a realization of something in us that is untouchable by whatever visits, that is, that is able to meet the joys and the sorrows with balance, less reactivity, with goodwill, with compassion. And that's the path of awakening. And it starts with, with creating the conditions in our life of uh, relative inner and outer safety by establishing a commitment to non-harming, a commitment to speaking to ourselves kindly. Any of you speak unkindly to yourselves today? To speaking to ourselves kindly, to speaking to others kindly, just elaborating on that a little bit, speaking truthfully, speaking in a timely way, speaking for someone's benefit rather than what is commonly either uh, either 
consciously or unconsciously blaming and demanding rather for the benefit of someone else speaking um, in a not a harsh way not a critical way but speaking in a kind way establishing a livelihood that is uh, that does not engage in uh, intoxicants and weapons or things that cause harm it's a little bit tricky but making sure that our livelihood is uh, onward leading harmonious our um, you know limiting our use of of things that make us dull and confused and lead to heedless actions so limiting our intoxicants that that cloud our minds uh, being uh, non-harming in our sexual relationships being ultra sensitive about the motivation behind our sexual actions is it for simply to play out lust or does it is it to make heartful connections is it uh, is it timely is it wise i i know in my younger years i the force of sexuality was so strong that i got involved in relationships that i knew intuitively were not the best idea but uh, i did it anyway and had a lot of moments where i it was i regretted it afterward and so there's suffering and the end of suffering involved in establishing a foundation of non-harming the buddha said if you don't do this if you don't really really commit yourself to inner and to not causing yourself or others harm uh, that it would be like trying to row a boat and not untying it from the dock your practice will go nowhere you spin your wheels just secondly and very briefly developing your mindfulness concentration and arousing energy the energy to stay present remembering doing everything in your life that supports balanced energy balanced mind concentration moment to moment mindfulness train your mind establish tranquility calm abiding and then apply that to seeing carefully how things are know for yourself through the mental training the um the facts of life know that everything comes and goes notice that grasping brings suffering letting go brings freedom know that through your own direct experience and how do we know that through our direct experience by paying close attention to how our own life works don't adopt a view about this you don't adopt a view about letting go of of intoxicants and desires you see what happens when you act out see what happens when you feed the wanting mind does it really bring you relief so that was basically the four noble truths but just as a short hand something that we can do every day is that we can we can commit ourselves by using the refuges or the 
means of safety, that the basic means of safety that the Buddha recommended uh, in the form of the three jewels, refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And when I talk about these, I don't think of refuge in the Buddha as this wonderful historical figure. That's, that's a nice thing. And I don't mean just chanting about refuge in the Buddha. That's a very external formality. I'm talking about refuge in the Buddha, which means that capacity of wakefulness within your own mind stream, within your own consciousness. The very consciousness or awareness through which you're perceiving right this instant, that's the Buddha. The Buddha is that which is awake in you. So if I asked you right now to stop being awake, stop being aware, instantly you discover the Buddha. The one who knows. That pure knowing in you. That doesn't really have a location. It's that consciousness. It's mysterious. Awareness. Whatever you want to call it. Forget the names. To take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma. The Buddha, the, the, wakefulness, the wakefulness in us, knows the Dharma. The Dharma, we could talk about it as the, as the path of awakening, as the teachings, as the Four Noble Truths that I just said. But the Dharma in the most immediate sense is take refuge in things just as they have come to be right here. That phrase in, from the Pali, yata bhuta, things as they are. Refuge in things just the way they are, just as they've come to be. What's, how, how are things right now? I don't mean your life situation. That's also a work, that's something it's good to work at, accepting, at least in this moment, how your life situation is. But I'm talking about this moment. Things as they are right now. So there's the idea of things, and then there's the reality of things. The reality of things is different levels. The reality of our situation, the reality of what's happening at the six doors of perception. If we miss the reality of the six doors of perception, it's really hard to find any refuge in the reality of our life situation. Because we're, we're in a sea of our story. We're in the sea of the world that we create in our mind. So we have to be also grounded in what's happening at your sense doors right now. What's happening in your body? What's happening in your mental state? What's happening in your thoughts? What's happening with your breathing? What's happening with the other senses, ears, nose, tongue, eyes? So take re- that's the Dharma. Truth. How it is. So take refuge in the Buddha. Go to the Buddha for safety. That's go to yourself. As the Buddha said as he was dying, be a lamp unto yourself. Often the metaphor of light, the light of awareness. Be that light. Trust that. Merge with it, as they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's deathless. It's the only thing that doesn't, isn't subject to decay. The inherent purity of the mind. Refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Dharma, last but not least, refuge in the Sangha, in the support 
of the community of like-minded people, those who are in whatever form they've chosen in their life are also interested or taking refuge or experimenting with refuge in the in wakefulness, refuge in things as they are, not in how they could be, should be, would be, can be. I long them to be, but how they are. And when you meet with with a community of people who have that interest, there's a there's something healing in it. There's something supportive. There's something something um, safe in it. This community is not busy trying to. Um, uh, cover the faults, gloss over the the warts, the worldly wind, the the pain. We're just continually, moment after moment. Ideally, that's we're all works in progress, but we're all trying to moment by moment confess our delusions. Say, this is what my mind's doing. I'm crazy. I'm completely nuts. This moment. Anyway, take refuge in the Sangha. Now this could also mean, traditionally, refuge in the Sangha was in the, the Sangha of awakened beings, the, the stream of generosity and compassion that has led, the, led us to be able to, to listen to the teachings 2,500 years later, that stream of living Dharma, the living transmission of teachings. And there's something, there's some faith and some safety to be found in, the, in this stream of of uh, practitioners and it's a little bit more mystical that history that timeless channel of, of wisdom that that if it wasn't for that stream of Arya awakened uh, Sangha we wouldn't be here so you can draw some refuge from that but it's really the most immediate the refuge in your fellow practitioners or you may have the impulse to uh, join a uh, monastic sangha, and be and take refuge in that form of sangha, where people, in their their very practice of the different monastic rules, commit to sila, that ethics and morality, samadhi, training their minds, wise understanding, and commit to living together with a high level of renunciation uh, and support for for the Buddha and the Dharma. So the, the form is, there are many forms, but it really comes down to all of us. Nobody can do this alone. Nobody can practice alone. We all need each other. So I think I'll end on that note, unless anyone has any quick comments. Um, again, maybe we'll... Since I, at least in my mind, I was the 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 methodology for safety and refuge is both uh, awareness, loving kindness, and compassion. And for that, I think I'll we'll do a couple chants. How's that? First, we'll do the chant that's been done for twenty five hundred years. The chant that's repeated three times that that is our way tonight of making a commitment to go for our safety instead of to the mall, at least for this experiment, instead of to the mall, go to the Buddha 
for refuge, go to the Dharma for refuge, go to the Sangha for refuge. And we'll do it call and response in the Pali language and that kind of links us with the history of the Dharma. I'll do a brief introduction. Han tamayam buddharatana satinayan jakaromase namotasa That's your turn. Namotas bhagavato arahato samasambhutasa namotasa bhagavato arahato Samasambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambhutasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhamam Saranam Gachami Sangham Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Sankam Saranam Gachami May all beings uh, realize the Buddha within, find refuge in things as they are, and find the safety and support of wise and loving company. you. I was going to read the, the uh, Sutra on loving kindness, but we've run out of time. I'll save it for next week. We'll do a whole night on loving kindness, perhaps. Uh, just a reminder, as usual, that uh, anyway, it's, it was a joy to sit with you tonight, and so ba- nice to be back here, and um, hope to see you next week. And just a reminder that this room, as always, costs us $150 per night. So any room rental donna, generosity in support of the room is much appreciated. And there are many ways you can offer room rental donna. One is by uh, offering cash in that basket over there. You can write checks if you'd like them to be tax deductible. You can write checks to the St. John the Evangelist Church. 
and put Mission Dharma on the memo line and it's, it, you'll get a, a tax deduction. Or you can do PayPal if you'd like on our website. And then with the same goes with uh, anybody who takes this seat, who offers teachings, uh, does it, my, it's at least me, I do it as my practice of dana, of generosity, and in the cycle of giving and receiving that's gone on for 2,500 years, those who receive are given the invitation as your practice of dana to support uh, my requisites by putting money in the basket if you like, or in whatever form. And thank you for your support, and allows me to come back next week or go on to the next group and Let's keep the wheel going for another 2,500 years. Not the wheel of suffering, but the wheel of <laughs> the wheel of Dharma. Anyway, thank you, and thanks for your practice. And please be mindful and take refuge. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.